Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus the Contractor's Life, an unscripted, free-flow, no-axe-to-grind podcast that explores the often murky and secretive world of overseas private security contracting and the private contracting world as a whole, told by the men and women who've been there and done it. Sorry, folks, no salacious stories, no call-outs, no secrets exposed. We are, however, unabashedly American and patriotic in every way. So this episode of Aconis the Contractor's Life is brought to you in part by the fine folks at Guri Security in the country of Pakistan. They have multiple office locations throughout the country and can provide you with a full line of private security services. So if you're going to be in Pakistan and need or want a reputable and professional private security solutions while in Pakistan, contact them by email at info at gurisecurity.com and or visit the website at GurySecurity.com.pk. Uh, That's GurySecurity.com.pk. From the foothills of Northwestern Washington, folks, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guests for this episode are Greg Hesch and Mike Ritchie. That's right, folks. Today I'm talking with both of them, the dynamic duo. Each has been on at least twice, and I'm pleased to have them both back for another round of discussions. Greg's uh, former member of the U.S. Air Force, private security contractor, paramedic, wildland firefighter. Uh, Mike, as you may or may not remember, folks, is a former member of the United States Navy, paramedic, private security contractor, and owner of Survival Mindset. Gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Uh, who's going who's gonna to go first? <laughs> Morning, chat. <laughs> Morning, guys. How you doing? Doing well. Another, another day in paradise down here in Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, we hear it and read it every day. Um, well, but the weather's great down there, though, isn't it? In, in fact, in both of you guys, where you guys are at, uh, weather's good today, isn't it? Nope. Oh. Woke up to uh, 50-degree temperatures and rain. Oh. Oh. Okay. Um, normally that's what we have where I'm at, but, uh, today is a nice sunny day with blue skies. Uh, Mr. Hesh, how are things in your corner of the world? Windy and dusty today. <laughs> is it sunny though? <laughs> uh, yeah, it sun's out, but it's a little hazy overcast. Okay. All right. Yeah. And, uh, you're, you're elevated quite a ways where you're at too. Um, like. Beyond a mile, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right at uh, 6,800 feet. So, uh, you know, around at 7,000 feet altitude. So we're right there. <laughs> so you're perfectly acquainted and acclimated to the high desert um, places, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Great training ground. <laughs> right. All right. Um, so uh, both of you have served uh, in the in the United States military in one branch or the other. You're both veterans. You both have worked overseas as private security contractors. You're both paramedics. You guys have uh, seen uh, probably your fair share of, of things going on. So um, with that said, um, for the folks that may not remember or have not heard your, uh, from you guys before, uh, would uh, each of you take a, take a moment to uh, briefly introduce yourselves and uh, uh, just give them a brief glimpse of your background. Go ahead. Mike? Go, go ahead, Greg. 
served, uh, you know, the United States Air Force, did the military thing as a medic. Um, <clears throat> good time. A uh, lot of uh, variety in my missions and where I was in the world. Um, then, you know, kind of civilianized my license, uh, did some time in uh, Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh as a medic, um, then back to New Mexico and continued the um, experiences out here, putting on top of that uh, fire experience, uh, not only in a metropolitan and structural setting, but then did the whole wild stuff. It was more my forte because I was out in the woods again. Hmm. Um, and now I work in an emergency room uh, here in Santa Fe and uh, have the lead tech position there, training all the other new medics and EMT coming uh, to the system. Excellent. Um, Mike Ritchie, um, what's your, what's your, uh, what's your uh, brief story for the folks that are listening? Well, six years in the Navy, a lot of it uh, underwater on a nuclear-powered submarine. Um, did fast attacks and, and ballistic missile boats. So had a good time, you know, dive in one place, surface in another, go out and find a bar. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's just kind of how we rolled, you know. It's like underwater pirates. Mm. Um, <laughs> got out and uh, really had no idea what I wanted to do. So I I tried a few different careers. I, You know, I tried uh, uh, corrections. I was a correctional medic in, uh, in South Dakota at a maximum security penitentiary. That was an interesting time. Um, Went to work at a teaching hospital in, in Iowa uh, as a flight medic. Uh, spent a few years there. Had a good time, you know. Young, single, stupid, pocket full of money, you know. Just uh, just kind of doing it up. Came back to California. Um, decided I wanted to be a professional motorcycle road racer. So I did that for a few years. Had hmm. a good time. Got busted up a few times. The last one, the doctor said, you know, one more concussion. We're going to have to feed you with a slingshot. So pretty much uh, ended <laughs> that career. <laughs> wow. And uh, worked uh, security in aerospace, a um, number of different aerospace facilities. Um, the last one was Northrop Grumman here in California. I was uh, in charge of all the executive protection, and I had uh, 70 sites under my control for uh, uh, crisis management and emergency response. Hmm. From there, I went contracting and, uh, and went all the way up through WIPs, um, worked in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, came home in 2013 and been home since. Worked executive protection here in, uh, you know, in Southern California with uh, the folks in Hollywood and Beverly Hills and you know, places like that. Another really interesting experience. I use the word interesting a lot in place of a lot of other words that I'd like to use. But, <laughs> Um, I just got to the point where I just, I couldn't do it anymore. You know, you, you show up and, and these people just treat you like crap, you know, and, and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm here to protect you. You know, <laughs> you might want to be a little nicer to me, right. but it never happened. So I punched out, opened my own company, um, survival mindset started, uh, doing everything from, you know, basic CPR and first aid classes up through TAC med and, uh, added in, um, uh, the Alice program and the Texas A&M alert program for uh, active shooter and was running some of those classes. And then the coronavirus came along and just killed it. 
Mm. So I was coming up on, on retirement age and I just thought, you know, what the hell? I just kind of threw it all in. So now I'm building guns, um, put a gun shop in my garage and uh, teaching firearms. And that's pretty much it. Hmm. All right. So now both of you um, uh, got your start in the military. And and if I'm not mistaken, for, uh, you both learned uh, medicine as you know it or uh, emergency treatment, uh, however you want to term it. But you both got your first foray in the military on that on that uh, aspect of it, correct? Right. Yeah, correct. Okay. Uh, so from your guys' experiences, uh, can you say that there is a difference, and if so, what kind of difference between the type of treatments or, or uh, medical response you provide here in the States versus what you do outside the States? Or is it the same, you just see different kinds of wounds? Go ahead, Mike. Well, uh, you know, it, it's 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 interesting that, that you bring that up because, you know, here in the States we have, and, and I know I know Greg's experience this too, um, you have so much more rigidity in, uh, in what you can actually do as a medic. Um, EMTs in California are basically ambulance drivers. You know, they can, uh, they can administer oxygen and they can help people take a medication, but they can't do anything else. EMTs in other parts of the country are, are you know, they're a little more wide open. Um, paramedics are pretty much um, governed by the same rules, um, you know, across the country. But overseas, it was like, it seemed like it was gloves off, you know. It's like whatever you were capable of and, and whatever you were set up to do, you basically did. Hmm. So do you think... Yeah, I, I, that's a real accurate assessment of- in my position, when I would go overseas and I was attached to an operational group or a team, um, I was expected to do everything from, you know, uh, placing a chest tube to yep. um, surgery stuff. And it was something that we were trained in. It was something that we had to maintain competence in and stuff. Nowadays, it's funny because, you know, I work in the emergency room and uh, it's very uh, regimented by the uh, insurance and the liability and who's charging what. Uh, So instead of utilizing skills, uh, they kind of have a tendency to to chip your skills back. My job nowadays is to push that line forward and uh we do a pretty good job of it you know we're we're uh up there still intubating in the hospital and doing stuff um the flight service when i was working as a flight paramedic we had uh just a little more lateral movement because we were the ones going to outlying facilities and picking up uh patients that they could maintain so there's a broad spectrum of where about you go. And, you know, once you enter into the critical care medicine as a paramedic, um, you're up there doing some pretty unique stuff. Uh, but overall, same thing. You know, EMTs are basically treated as uh, ambulance drivers and, they, you know, glorified first aiders, medics. 
depending on the service you work for, uh, they have a tendency to push it just a little bit farther because a lot of areas look at the term paramedic being the extension of the physician's hands into the field. Right. So when we go into contracting, it was very interesting that you had to have um, a pretty solid background in internal medicine as well, because that's what you're going to see a lot of. You know, you're, you're going to see a trauma here and there and stuff, but the most of it, uh, you know, <clears throat> at least when, when we were in um, Iraq and stuff, I had more cases of, of the, the fru, the, you know, the Ugandan flu, yep. that we had <laughs> anything from infected self-circumcision to uh, you, you name it. You mm. know, it was one of those dental yeah. work. First I've ever had to extract teeth was, uh, you know, in Iraq, and there was no one else to do it. So it came to me, and they were like, "Yep, you here? Watch a YouTube on it and do it." So, yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> hey, 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 Greg, I can say something to you that will bring back haunting memories. Ready? <laughs> sir, yeah, sir, I am sick. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, you could be sitting in your office. And a Ugandan soldier will walk in. He could have a piece of rebar sticking out of out of the front of his skull, and he would knock on your door and say, "Sir, I am sick." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Absolutely. Now, now, was that because these guys were just were they just that tough and resilient, or was that just what they knew and how what they knew to say? It pretty much was limited to what they've experienced. <clears throat> over in Uganda, you know, the, anything there was an illness. The yeah. one thing I found out is if I treated one and one walked out with a handful of lozenges, I would have a line at the door and they would all be expecting, ah, this is making him better, so I must take some too. Exactly. It was like, no matter what's wrong with you, you know, you have an infected toe, but those lozenges, man, they were going to help. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, or, it, you know, just sitting in the office all day long handing out you know, the little flu meds and, and, you know, the antihistamines and stuff. And, Sir, I am sick. I am coughing. <laughs> okay, here, take a handful of these. You'll be fine. You know, yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting question. Did you, did, do you guys think they were serious or were they, were they just playing it because they didn't want to uh, go to work or get off early? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. No, go ahead, Greg. Expand on that. Oh, I... I finally had to invent out there. It was kind of a crazy thing. And uh, all the um, guards that I worked with with EODT thought it was crazy. But I invented what we call boo-boo sewing. And (laughs) I had a huge influx of Halloween candy for uh, the kids sent out there. And I took all the Smarties and I divided them up onto different colors. And I put them in jars. (laughs) And come in dole out like 20 boo-boo sillin in a little med bag and hand it to them and tell them, hey, you need to take two of these every day. Uh, and uh, it was... But only, but only two. Yeah. Don't, don't take any more than that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It was perfect for their little running stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, you know, every once in a while we see one of them just majorly 
screw one of them up or each other up or something like that. So we had our we had our challenge up there. <laughs> oh know- yeah, there were some uh, there there were some interesting um, interesting challenges we had there, um, and, and I think I think Greg might agree with this assessment as well. Um, the Ugandans were. Um, they were very sweet people. Um, a lot of them were, were very well educated. Um, very immature and, and very unworldly. Hmm. Um, almost to the point of like where you had a, 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 like an educated ninth grader, you know, hmm. um, you could, you could task them with, with all kinds of different things. We had guys working in the, in the ECPs, you know, running the, the biometrics and all that, you know, very well suited for stuff like that. But, you know, you'd also have the guy that, um, you know, you got an ingrown toenail and, and, you know, you remove it or, or, you know, treat it in in one method or another. And, you know, like four months down the road, he's still not wearing a shoe because his toe still hurts, you Mm. know, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with him, but they get it in their head that, you know, if I do this, I can wear a more comfortable shoe on at least one foot and I can go hang out. Hmm. Yeah, very, 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 very true. Okay, we had some guys that got really super jacked up. You know, um, we had one guy that stepped out, stepped off the bus and didn't walk around the front, walked around the back and stepped right into traffic and got drugged down the road by a Humvee. Oh, about 100 yards. Yeah, yeah, we sent him home. Um, Another guy that's uh, standing at the top of the tower and his, his little tower partner was down at the bottom throwing cases of water up to the top. And he's reaching over and, and grabbing them. And well, he reached a little too far for one of them. And that thing just drug him right over the rail and mm. straight down to the ground. Oh, yeah. man. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, you think about it, it's like, you know, it's like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. But <laughs> <laughs> that kid was messed up. <laughs> Oh man! Uh, in hindsight, that's one of those things that, in hindsight, it, 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 we laugh about it. But at the time, it's like I mean, all kinds of other things go through your mind, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's like you know, th- things you things you hear about when no one had a camera. You know. Right. <laughs> you know that's interesting uh, because uh, earlier, uh, I think Mike, I think I heard you say something about a self something circumcision. Um, now. Has either of no, you that actually? Was, that was Greg. That was Greg. Greg, I mean, have you? I'm assuming one or both of you has have seen something like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, uh, you know, we had uh, the one day we had the accidental discharge in the tower. I think that was still while we were at Cedar, and we had one of the Ugandans go to go through the clearing process, um, but jacked around in and. Uh, didn't clear the breach and fired it off. And lo and behold, it struck uh, another one between the toes, which was interesting. Took the foot, you know, but uh, then I had a case of um, African river blindness. That was very interesting because no one there uh, was able to provide this guy any care. So I ended up having to launch him out of Cedar to the Lil, borrow their slit lamp, do an exam while the uh, optometrist was out of his office, uh, do an exam, consult back home, and put him on an antiparasitical. And uh, it was 
it was a challenging case, but we saved the kid's vision and stuff. So, hmm. you know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff like that. Um, what year, what year did you come to Tulil? Uh, I was 2009. I started off there. I was back and forth to Tulil several times. Okay. Yeah, that's where I was. I was at Tulil. You know, 2010 and 11. 10 and 11? Mm -hmm. We probably crossed tracks at some point then. Probably so. Uh, who were you working with in Tulil? SOC. SOC? Okay, I was with uh, EODT. Okay. So, yeah. Hey, man, we, yeah. we, we swallowed some of the same air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know you know, w one of you uh, mentioned something about. Uh, I think it was you, Greg. You mentioned uh, the 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 difference in the mindset and the treatment uh, for guys like you and Mike here in the states versus outside the states. And, and you and I think Mike agreed with with your assessment that it had to do with, um, uh, what, you know, the bean counting uh, insurance thing. Um, why do you guys think? You know, I mean, it might it might be an obvious question, but maybe there's a little bit more to it. But um, why do you guys think that that outside the United States, particularly, I mean, in in war zone type areas, why do you think that they they entrust you guys with a whole lot more than the one to trust you here in the states? Um, is it just that insurance thing? I mean, is that all it is? Liability and worried about being dragged into court? No, it's a lack of asset. Yeah, absolutely. You have tons of medics. You have, you know, EMTs. You have all kinds of this huge medical system, probably the best medical uh, on earth today. <clears throat> when you're out there, um, you're it. And you're essentially put out there. Um, they kind of give you a general scope of this is what you do, but uh, do what you need to do. Because uh, when we're out, like, you know, in Cedar or even worse, up in Ouija, um, when I was up there, it was just, you know, uh, you're it. And I had uh, a physician come in one time. We had a great guy to start out with. I had a fully tabbed Ranger PA that was up there. Great guy, knew his stuff, uh, had to sharpen his shooting up a little bit with us, but we got that done. This is not always uh, the case. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, his replacement came in one day, and we're out on the uh, back little deck that we built off the end of a chew and uh, doing our, our Friday grilling, and here comes this female in, middle-aged uh, army officer, and um, I invite her over, and we're talking and stuff, and she informs me that she's a pediatric oncologist and i well that's I, I that's handy in a war zone. yeah ah i took a double <laughs> take you know how are you doing out of here and she had no idea that my came up and this is what they where they sent me and she was absolutely terrified because she had no clue what to do if you know we had um uh, a shelling strike and we were always getting shelled up at Ouija. Uh, it was just something that they did on Fridays to show us that they were there. So <laughs> we're up there, and uh, mortars start coming in. And, of course, we're on this deck listening to music, watching, listening to them pop off downrange from us and stuff. 
because uh, they couldn't hit the broadside of the barn inside of it. So, looked at all of it. was like, you guys have been here way too long. And it was at that point I made it. You open up your pharmacy to me and my guys. You know, you open up and allow me access to your med cash because I really don't have one up here other than what I've gathered through my travels to Iraq. And uh, I'll make sure that if anything goes down, I'll come here and I'll handle the uh, medevac, the stabilization and all that stuff. And I said, it's it's pretty straightforward stuff. You know, it's it's routine trauma stuff. And once you've done trauma enough, you learn that, OK, here, here's the key to it. Stop the bleeding, fill the yep. tank, maintain the airway and get them out of here. Get them to a surgical site. Hmm. So um, he was very happy to hear that we have support. And I was very happy to hear that I had access to a fully stocked pharmacy for my guys. So I think the best thing that you can do, do in any of those uh, scenarios is create that symbiotic relationship between, you know, uh, the guys who have it and the guys who don't. Right. And the military like that. And it, we worked very closely with them, had a lot of respect for those guys and stuff. And they were just in awe with our uh, capabilities and our um, ability to practice what we needed to practice out there. Hmm. Right. And, you know, to answer the other part of your question, the United States is all about insurance and liability. Um, and I, I learned that um, quite a few years ago, just, you know, working in orthopedics and, and trying to um, trying to dispense um, some hard equipment to a patient and, I had an insurance company turn us down for like a $250 brace. They wanted me to, um, to cast him and bivalve the cast, which means, you know, cut a, cut a, uh, an opening in it so that they can remove it and send him across town to get the exact same brace for three times as much money because that was their medical equipment supplier. Hmm. So that's how stupid it is, you know? Um, but once you get past, the cities, and I think Greg will agree with this. Um, Wildland is a good example. Um, medics that work out in, uh, you know, in rural areas that are, you know, a 30, 40 minute ride to the hospital by ambulance and even, you know, 12 to 15 minutes by helicopter. The, the more desolate and, and, um, and removed you are from the, the medical facility, um, the more you're allowed to do only because there's no other choice. If, if you fly out, like when I was in Iowa, we would fly, um, our radius took us out to farms that were really, really rural. And, and we're talking about, you know, farms that are a couple thousand acres or more. And uh, it was a long flight. And, you know, if, if our statement of work wasn't increased to allow us to do certain, certain techniques, um, people weren't going to make it back to the hospital. Hmm. So it, it's kind of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it's more of a, a really don't have any choice kind of situation. You know, that's interesting because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure you got, a lot of us have probably heard and read about the, uh, say, the law enforcement officer, the cop that moved, that after however many years working in the big city, takes a job, lateral transfer, whatever you want to call it, to a small town out in, like you said, Iowa or some other state uh, to escape 
for lack of a better term, the politics. Um, I mean, is that what you're talking about? You just, you know, politics don't play here. We're all about practicality and the best solution at the moment is what we want. I mean, that's what you guys are, that's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and and I don't, uh, you guys know that way better than I do um, that, that side of it. Uh, But I got to ask you, so the doctors at whatever level or whatever discipline they were in, they specialized in, did they not go um, to war zones like uh, that that are around the world because they didn't want to or because they didn't have, as you hearkened to, I think it was Mike about, or maybe it was Greg, that they didn't have what they felt were the other necessary skills and training um, to make them feel safe in that environment? Or was it both or something else? Uh, well, I think... In, no, go in, ahead, Greg. Okay, my, <clears throat> in my observation, it was very interesting to see because um, I think it's... And, and this is just an opinion. I really don't know how they work it and stuff. But it looked like it was almost on a lottery system in the sense that when your number came up, you were expected to fulfill some assignment. And that assignment, whatever pulled out of the hat, was where you went. Hmm. Um, In the early days of the conflict, of course, they were sending out people with, uh, you know, combat experience. They were sending out the 11 Bravos and uh, some of the docs that were going out there were pretty, pretty high, uh, high speed docs. Uh, and we met those folks and they were very good and they were very proficient at what they did. Um, and they gained most of their experience through the actual hands on in a conflict area. There's not a, a real school that's going to sit there and say, okay, this is conflict medicine. They teach medicine. Uh, with a twist that you might see this conflict zone. It's not until you're out there that you you have that experience. Unless, of course, you're in some place like Chicago or, you know, L.A. or someplace like that. Right. Yeah, it comes from like like a Ben Taub or or some, you know, uh, big trauma center like that in the middle of a a big city, L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, where you see a lot of gunshot wounds, a lot of... um, uh, a lot of other types of penetrating trauma, you know, fragmentation from gunshots and so on. Hmm. You know, saying trauma is trauma is kind of the easy part, but you know, tracing ballistic wounding patterns in a human body is 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 not easy, and it's not something that you can just look at a book and go, "Oh, okay, you know, I get it." It's something you you know, especially with the docs, they have to experience. Hmm. And you know, what's funny or not really funny, but kind of sad, is um. In the contracting world, people are attracted by the money, okay? So paramedics and PAs and, and, and even some of the physicians that I met um, when I was going for my second contract to go back to the green zone in Baghdad, um, we got these people that would show up that not only had they never really seen any trauma, um, they'd never really seen too much of anything, hmm. you know? Um, a, a PA that worked in a, in a physician's office somewhere, you know, in rural America, I mean, you know, you're going to see a, a tractor accident or something like that. But, um, 
you know, no experience with firearms, no experience with, with even being out of the country, you know. And because I'd already been on contract, you know, I was kind of tasked with helping bring them up to speed on the firearms and, and, and some of the tactics and, and things that we do, you know, uh, under attack. And I, and I mean, it was like <laughs> it was like trying to nail jello to a wall sometimes. <laughs> So just because I'm, uh, a person's a, be an adult and not know this. <laughs> so just because you're a doctor or you have that uh, uh, that nomenclature in your title, um, because there's all kinds of doctors. But just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you can do the deed um, in that setting or that environment any more than just because you were in the military doesn't mean that you can do what needs to be done. Um, unless so, you've got to sort through and sift this out and say, well. Where have you been? What have you done? And, you know, I mean, and that's what you're talking about. It's like, it's more than just a title, right? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of people that have a JD, but, you know, I mean, you can't just say a lawyer's a lawyer the same way you can't say a doctor's a doctor. You have a guy that's, you know, a GP, you know, he, he's a general practitioner. He he goes, he treats boo-boos and owies and hurties and and he's a great clinician, and he can diagnose, you know, uh, illness and disease. But he's not a trauma trauma surgeon. He's not a he's not an ER doc. He's you know, right. But I mean, but it's not but, what but, he does. So I mean, you, and you guys can clarify this uh, because I don't want to overstate it, and I certainly don't want to simplify it either. But I mean, what when you guys are trained as paramedics to do the work that we do outside the United States or the work that you guys did, uh, part of the work you guys did. Um, I mean, we're, we're talking, uh, like you said, you, you cover a broad, I mean, a very broad range of, of, of uh, maladies out there and injuries. But at the core of it, your, your training is for, <laughs> as a paramedic, is, is for that really bad, nasty uh, wound, right? I mean, that's, that's really at the nuts and bolts at what you guys are really trained for when, uh, as a paramedic, when you go overseas, is that correct? Um, yes, because here's the thing that is so unique about an overseas assignment, especially in an austere environment. Not only are you expected to sit there and take care of trauma because that's in the classification that you're being kind of hired for, but, you better have a pretty strong background in internal medicine as well. Yeah. Because you're going to have to figure some of this stuff out on your own. And I mean, on your own, on your own. Hmm. Um, not a lot of laboratory support out there. Not a lot of, uh, you know, I can't send a guy to radiology and say, okay, wrap film on this. And, um, you're kind of out there reinventing uh, frontier medicine hmm. in the sense that you've got to develop your diagnostic skills. You've got to be able to conduct uh, many hours of research on what's going on with an individual. You know, I'd mentioned the case of African river blindness, and I had gone through everything from sarcoma of the eye to, uh, you know, um, herpes of the eye to all this stuff. It wasn't until I was consulting with one of my physician friends back here in um, States that um, he started asking about this guy's bathing habits back at home. Did he have a stream near him and stuff? And that stuff. And it came through and he goes, oh, yeah, he's, he's got what's called African. And it comes from the larva of a fly under the rocks. And when they disturb the bottom and wash their face, they introduce the larva 
into their site. And so uh, that was quite the adventure hmm. for me in tracking down and solving this medical mystery. So to answer your question, yes, you are expected to have a strong trauma background. Um, but you better be well, well-rounded in internal medicine and tropical medicine and disease and all this crazy stuff. And it's something that you have to refine through experience. It's nothing that you can sit there and come up with these scenarios uh, in a classroom. It's just, it's just impossible to do it. Okay. <clears throat> so to re- so- and, and, you know, the, the other part of that is, you know, not only do you have to have a, a strong background in internal medicine, you better have a good working knowledge of just about everything else, you know, orthopedics and, 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 and everything that goes along with it. You know, mm. um, there are, I, I've always kind of, kind of been, you know, a, a middle of the road sort of guy. Like I like to get my hands into everything. I like to understand, <clears throat> um, you know, tactics and techniques on, on many different fields. But I think Greg will agree with this. It's like, we're, we're basically the first line and you know, we can, we can treat certain illnesses successfully, you know, proper medication and, and whatever, and, and we can recover that patient. Um, but there are certain things that, you know, you, you just see, especially when it comes to trauma, um, we're basically stabilizing packing and shipping. Hmm. You know, we're, we're like the, we're, we're the first cog in this big wheel that's going to keep this guy alive, you know, he may go all the way through, you know, someplace like Landshell or something like that, you know, on his way back to the States. But it was incumbent upon us to have that trauma background so that we could assess the damage, stabilize them, you know, stop the bleeding if there was bleeding, get them refilled and get them packaged up and shipped to the next highest level of care. Hmm. You know, um, the, the thought that came to mind is, uh, well, a couple or a few actually, but um I mean, that it's what you're saying from um, and you guys probably experienced this, both of you uh, and other guys out there, if they worked overseas as an EMT or paramedic, uh, if that was your 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 primary job. Uh, But a lot of us looked up to you guys and call and and to this day still sometimes refer to you guys as doc because we we consider you guys to be doctors um and at some point even friends and and i'm just saying for example i remember the first time i went into uh greg's um clinic for lack of a better term and i remember looking around going holy crap man that place was not only was it i think it was probably the same size as the chew i was in only he didn't have all the dividers and it was all his but he had stuff wall to wall floor to ceiling uh, on these on these shelves and racks and i was just like i was amazed and he had, I don't know, a gurney or, I mean, he just it looked like a doctor's office out in the desert. Uh, I mean, it was amazing. And, uh, and I don't know, I don't remember if you recall it, Greg, but uh, I remember that look on your face when I came in with that f- problem on the bottom of my foot near the heel. And it was a, it was a big ass corn or whatever. And it was just, it was just, it was so ingrown and so big. I, you know, you finally dug it out and it's like, wow, just what the doctor ordered. But I mean, even the little things like that, you know, because it, it was so uncomfortable uh, and, and painful at a point walking, it was, it, you know, it distracted me. But just that little thing right there, being able to dig that out, just as I recall a doctor doing back here in the States. I mean, we look at you guys as doctors and, and for practical and all intents and purposes, um, 
and I know you guys probably don't want to be called doctors, but I mean, that's effectively what you are <clears throat> to guys like us and when so, we're out there, right? Um, well, you know, the term doc, it, it's pretty funny because we don't ever call ourselves doctor. No. Uh, we are uh, we are given the, the, the title doc by those around us. Even in the fields when I was in the Air Force and being off in some far off country in South or Central America, I was always referred to as doc. Hey, doc, because you're the one with the medical experience. You're the one with the medical. <coughs> and uh, brought up a very interesting point. One of the skill sets required to do this kind of work in an austere environment is first of all to have that vision of what your clinical setting is going to look like, and then create that. So I was scavenging shelves. I was going over to the the burn pits and harvesting um, <laughs> you know, old plywood and building my shelves. And then you have to learn the procurement system, uh, kind of the internal black market, if you will, of working with the military and how to get stuff. Hmm. And so you work out the trade. Because before long, I had uh, quite the stockpile, and um, I had uh, you know a pretty good pharmacy built up that I was able to ship from point to point, which hmm. was hilarious. People at KBR <coughs> looked at me and was like, "Oh, I need a cryogenic spray in here, and I need uh, all these pharmaceuticals." And they looked at me and they go, "Well, you can't ship these in country." And I said, "Well, yeah, I can because." Uh, I'm, you know, this is my role and I need to make the clinic gets from here to there. So very easily by knowing who to talk to, I went to the postmaster over on Talil, um, who was some military guy overseeing the KBR operation. And I explained to him, I'm about to be moved from this location up to JSS McHenry up in Hoeja, which is a <clears throat> dot, just a, you know, a little place on the armpit of the world. And uh, he was um, very sympathetic to it. He told KBR guys right there, whatever he needs, ship, ship it. Hmm. And so. Yeah, um, it's, all about, it's all about connections, especially over there. Yeah. Connections in the network. And you have to be skilled at that. Those, those guys that came in that were either t- or didn't know how to do that from uh, lack of experience in the military, uh, then you know, they were at a, at a shortfall. Hmm. You had to be able to sit there and go, okay, yeah, I need a couple of gurney racks over here. Get me a couple of gurney stands, do this. And this is what I'm going to need. And then everything else you invent yourself. You know, people were like, well, how do you sterilize your instruments? And I was like, ever heard of a, you know, a penny alcohol lamp that you create out of a Coke can? Hmm. I said, that's how I do it. I flash instruments through flame, just the way you would, you know, back home, in the back country of someplace in, you know, West Virginia or someplace, hmm. and you didn't have an option. You just dip them flame and stuff. So there's a lot of ingenuity that has to be uh, brought on to the job in the role of doc. Hmm. So doc is one of the terms that is all-inclusive of medical practice because not only are you doing things like treating the sick, wounded and stuff, but you've got to create your own work environment out there. Because no one's going to come along and say, oh, by the way, 
here's your clinic. <laughs> Never had <laughs> <laughs> they just drop a chew down in the middle of wherever you are and it's completely stocked. And like, oh, well, thank you very much. Greg's absolutely right. I mean, you have to you have to be um you have to be highly skilled as a scavenger as well. You hmm. know, it's um you know, you cruise into the clinic, you into the cash or or you know, I was lucky at um at Bastion because we had a roll three hospital there, so I could get pretty much anything I needed. But um, you still have to make friends with these guys, and you have to make friends with the right guys hmm. and girls. Um, and once you do that, and then, you know, as contractors, we were we were covered under some insurance policy, and we were supposed to see this other physician that was uh, that was on the facility. And, and I went and talked to the guy, and I think he was a veterinarian. <laughs> I mean, he was just he was completely useless as as a physician but he had all kinds of equipment hmm. so you know if one of my guys got hurt i could get him over there and, and get an x-ray and then you know i could collect the x-ray from him i could read it um where he couldn't you know um hmm. so you know it's just you i hate to say it but you kind of kind of have to use some people to get what you need and and the rest you know you befriend and you trade and you barter and and beg and steal and, you know, <laughs> go to the burn pit and, you know, see what's laying around and, and, you know, you use what you can. Well, that's interesting you bring that up uh, because uh, so I've, I've known some people that are veterinarians and uh, they, they chafe a little bit when uh, you argue that they aren't a real doctor. So with that said, um, did, did you guys have any experiences uh, since you brought it up uh veterinarians working in this type of job you guys had? I mean, or, or was that just, were they something totally different? Did you guys ever well, work? No, we, did you ever work with veterinarians at, you know, doing your work over there? I didn't work with a veterinarian, but what I did work with is the uh, kennel master. Yeah. Um, the kennel master I had, I worked very closely with because, they once again it's a symbiotic relationship because every once in a while they'd get a dog down on fluids get too dehydrated i'd go over there and i'd pop a line in the dog you know i'd shave a forearm put mm. a needle in it and give them a fluid and their dog would be oh fantastic well that is when i needed like anti-parasiticals to treat african river blindness who did i go to i went to the vet or to the kennel master and said, hey, do you guys have a stash of anti-parasiticals? Absolutely we do. We have to of course we do. <laughs> right. Huh. So that I scored anti-parasiticals for, uh, you know, a patient. And uh, it was very unique. We, we were kind of laughing about it because we're like, wow, we're crossing over some med lines here, you know, from uh, veterinarian medication, human medication, but that's exactly what it called for. No, yeah. and, yeah, and, and you know, and, over there, it's like you don't have the, the the liability issue that you have to worry about. You know, it's like, oh my God, you gave him dog medicine. Oh, <laughs> you know, he can see, right? <laughs> but but you guys are hearkening to an important point. We're talking practicality. Who cares how it's labeled as long as it works, right? That's basically that's the essential rule out there. Yeah, it's kind of unwritten. <clears throat> doctrine out there but um it goes back to you know improvise adapt and overcome 
Okay. You know? So you have to do what you have to do out there in order to meet the detail of stuff. The people that didn't um, have a lot of experience or had not practiced medicine in an austere environment, they were more apt just to ship people home. Hmm. Yeah. And very problematic because then you're looking at now we've weakened our protective force. I have this vacancy in here and I've just cut this person's ability to earn an income completely off. Hmm. And that's never a good thing, especially from an underprivileged place like Uganda, <clears throat> where a lot of our guards were coming out of, um, you know, I didn't want to affect their lifestyle that way. So the best I could do is, you know, yes, I'll keep you, on some kind of light duty or modified duty, but we need to continue you working and you need to make your shifts and all this stuff. So my job out there, not only for the company and for the scenario, but as well for the patient was to make sure that they were in proper working order. Hmm. Right. And, and, you know, to, to build on that, it's like, you weren't just a medic, you know, you were, you were a sage, you were a confidant, um, you know, you were a shoulder to cry on, you, you were a listening post. Um, and a lot of times you're nothing more than a babysitter. Hmm. You know, I, I'd go around and make rounds to the towers, you know, and just, hey, guys, make sure you drink plenty of water today. You know, <laughs> you gotta hmm. go out and take care of your five-year-olds. You know, it's 105 <laughs> degrees outside. You're in a concrete tower, you know, might want to drink another bottle of water or two. <laughs> You know, uh, we laugh about it in hindsight, but but what you're talking about, all the things you guys have brought up, I mean, but those are pretty much common things that happen over there, right? And and, and you guys become psychologists, you become sociologists, you become counselor, and like you said, I mean, it's but but those those little things that most people don't think about, like uh, you mentioned, uh, shaving the dog to infuse him, uh, or making sure the guys are drinking enough during the day. I mean, but those are things you guys have to take upon yourself sometimes to make, or maybe a lot of times, uh, to make sure that everything's uh, those things are taken care of. Is that right? True, very true. You've got to be able to sit there and be rigidly flexible. You can't sit there and. <laughs> My role is just this. It doesn't work out there. Yeah. Um, got to be that guy that can, um, you know, move things along in a fashion that everyone is being cared for. Uh, and that's, you know, that was very true out there, especially doing uh, the, the static assignments and stuff. You know, once I was assigned to the PD, uh, PSD teams at the embassy, things changed quite a bit. I was still the doc. People still referred people to me and stuff, but it was a much smaller concentrate group than doing force protection out someplace and being responsible for everyone out on the LSA or, or the post and stuff. And Mike brought up a really good point. You are so much more than um, just the medical person out there. Mm. You absolutely become the, you know, the psychiatrist in a lot of ways, the counselor. Uh, there's a lot of things that need to be taught you. So you become the instructor because if something seriously does go down, I need everyone out there to have some concept of tourniquet, bloodborne pathogen, all this stuff. So I used to hold trainings all the time hmm. for my guys on the, and even to the point where after we had the, uh, 
RPG attack up on a tower. I forget what base it was, but one of the towers got hit, and the guy ended up bleeding out up, up in the tower because everyone just freaked, ran away from the tower, left him up there. Wow. And uh, story short, I was then tasked by the company to figure out a way of extracting people out of the concrete towers. And so I spent uh, a little bit of money out of my pocket, bought some rigging equipment, some climbing equipment, some rope, and uh, developed a way to get these people out of a tower on a sked while being protected from the inside of the tower. So we just, you know, set up a rappel system that we could lower someone loaded up in a sked, which is a combat structure, uh, down the tower and get them out with... Uh, um, out further problems. Hmm. So, so you, you you basically instructed yeah. yourself on on high rope rescue from a tower, <laughs> right? Exactly. Wow. Yeah, I created that. You know, I had a I had a background in high angle rescue, fire department, and, right? And uh, so I had to take those skills and turn it around to okay, we're still taking fire. You guys set up a, uh, a protective up uh, on this. We'll do the 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 anchoring to the tower, and we'll figure out how to lower this guy down while wounded, having a truck right there to take him to the aid station. Right. And uh, it was pretty cool. We we uh, we practiced it. I ran the guards through it. I ran uh, all of the different ships through it up in uh, McHenry, and uh, it worked out pretty good. Hmm. Uh, so at least we had that answer. You know, versus how am I going to get the guy here right. who's been mangled a uh, spiral staircase? Uh, right, and and that's one of those things where not only did you take it upon yourself uh, to to do what needed to be done, but you figured it out. So for any of the naysayers that may be saying yada yada yada, it's like, well, what's your answer? Okay, what's your plan? You know, right. um, and 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 I think those are the sorts. That's one of the many things. Uh, that we end up doing is, is figuring out um, whether it's thinking outside the box or just being creative or just using what's at hand uh, to take care of the things that needs to be done. And sometimes it's just the simple little things that you ordinarily wouldn't think of because it's, uh, you know, that mother of invention thing. Um, but I want to ask you guys, uh, you <sighs> You guys, uh, in terms of medical treatment and training, uh, the medical stuff, I remember there was a time, and I don't know if they still do it, uh, my guess is they do, there was a time when combat lifesaver and uh, tactical combat casualty care type stuff were, were, were all the rage, and they were a big thing, and they were a big deal, and uh, some of it could get pretty intense and uh, long hours uh, learning this stuff. Uh, so for the people that are listening, can, can you, uh, both of you guys, maybe go into what's the difference between both in terms of training and practical uh, use, uh, say a combat lifesaver and tactical combat casualty care versus the, the same sort of work that you would do here in the States? Are they the same? They're just applied differently? Uh, what are the differences in those? And, 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 uh, you know, and, and how do they differ between overseas and stateside? Mike, go ahead and start off. All right. Well, um, my take on it would be would be this, and, and it's come about in the last couple of years. Um, 
I, I just became a, a stop the bleed instructor last year through the American College of Surgeons. And, and it seems like it took almost forever, but they finally realized that civilians need to be trained on how to stop bleeding. And it, and it came from the military because, you know, the, the studies were conducted and, and um, you know, they came up with the numbers and they determined that something like 70 to 80 percent of all preventable deaths in combat was from blood loss. And that's when they started putting a tourniquet on every trooper's body armor and teaching them how to use it. Hmm. So, you know, as soon as your buddy gets shot, you slap a tourniquet on then it rolled out to the police departments here in, in, in the United States. And, and I mean, we've all seen the videos. Um, it's like they train on it once and then they never do it again. <laughs> they put a tourniquet on their belt. And, and you know, I mean, I, it's just, it, it floors me. But now they've come out with this stop the bleed program where they're trying to teach more civilians how to stop bleeding. And, and, it's still an uphill battle. You know, you still tell these people, this is something you really should learn. And you're like, well, you know, I- I'm never going to get shot. And it's like, do you, do you have a skill saw in your garage? <laughs> do you have butcher knives in, in your kitchen? Do you have a chainsaw? You know? Right. A, a gun isn't the only thing that's going to start bleeding. You know, you're not going to get attacked by, you know, a band of roving pirates with machetes and cutlasses. <laughs> um, you could hurt yourself in the garage and you can sit out there and bleed to death if you don't know how to fix yourself. Right, or you fall out of a tree oh. and break break something, and and uh, you start bleeding or whatever. Um, but there's all kinds of yeah. Um, but that and let me ask you now, now because I, there's I know there's in talking with some people here in the states, there's a big misconception on what stopping the bleeding means and the application. Where do you put it? Um, and how do you do it? Do you do you put a big wad of gauze? Do you do the knot thing? Do you do it above or below? Um, can you guys help clarify some of that stuff? Yeah, it's called the cat tourniquet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cat that tourniquet, put it as high on the limb as you can get it and tighten it down right. until they scream. Absolutely. Those, those, those are your, those are your instructions. Um, it, and even American Heart Association, you know, for as good as, as they do with CPR and, and stuff like that, uh, even in their book, it will tell you to put a tourniquet two inches above the wound. Hmm. And that's just totally incorrect. And, and you, you got to get that tourniquet up as high on the limb, on the affected limb as possible. Why? Well, what if one tourniquet doesn't do the trick? Hmm. Now you got room to put on another one, you hmm. know, and they say, well, how, how tight should it be? Really tight. It should hurt because if, if you get proper compression, on the venous structure to stop the bleeding, you're going to get compression on the nerves as well. And it's going to hurt. Hmm. Now there's two, there, there's another school of thought behind that too. If I put a tourniquet on somebody who's just lost most of their hand or lost most of their leg and they're screaming in pain from the tourniquet, what did, what did I accomplish? I took their mind off of what's really happening. Right. Even for a moment. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know, and that's interesting because I, I've, I'm sure you guys have seen this more than I have, but I remember seeing it, and, and of course it was uncomfortable. I'm not going to deny that I didn't, you know, want to screech and yell at the person applying it when we were practicing, you know, ratcheting it down. But, I mean, when you say tighten it down until they scream, I mean, you're you're pretty much not kidding. I mean, you, uh, because to do no, this properly, you've got to really ratchet these things down. 
Yeah, remember when Correct. we did it in whips? They made us put it on until our arm turned gray. <laughs> I remember mine going numb pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, that freaking hurts, man. It does. Well, and, yep. and, and the interesting thing about it, too, um, is, and correct me, but I seem to recall to this day that one of the things I said is that you can, when you apply a tourniquet to, say, a limb that's been, you know, at the, you know, say, you know, at from the elbow down, you lost your arm, and so we're applying it up, you know, near the armpit area now, right? Because we want to go as high as we can. But that once I've applied that tourniquet, that uh, I, you know, of course, you want to check it periodically, and you guys can go into how periodically you want to check it and some of the things you want to look for. But I mean, one of the things that struck me is that you can leave it there for i want to say it was four hours before you've got to take it off or, or readjust it is that right go ahead greg <laughs> yeah you know there's different schools of thought one of the trauma surgeons i used to work with here he was um quite an amazing gentleman a guy by the name of colonel wasner and he used to run the um uh tactical medicine and advanced medical school for combatants up at Fort Bragg. Uh, he all his His statement to me was, you know, the thing can almost be left up for up till about eight hours before it starts doing muscle damage. Huh. Um, not that you want to leave it there for that long, but he said the options are your person bleeds out. You right. know, save life over them so in those scenarios of being in a truly austere environment not having the ability of medevac or something like that you know you have to weigh that you have to weigh the loss over life over limb and um so it could be left on uh for quite some time before it does do damage okay you know mike uh you on something really with uh bleeding and, and uh, what American Heart Association and those folks look at, look at. It used to be when we were taught American Heart Association, everything ABC, airway, breathing, circulation. Yep. Well, maybe what, four years ago, something like yeah. that? Yeah, it was American about four Heart years ago. Had flipped it, and it all of a sudden became CAB, circulation, airway, breathing. And one of the reasons they did that is because they were having people performing compressions and artificial respiration on someone who's bleeding out their entire volume. Mm. So nowadays it's look, stop any life-threatening bleeding. Yep. So that's a hot mm. now. Uh, and they had to change that because of, you know, people not adhering or not having the knowledge base to go, someone's <laughs> going to die. Okay, so, so so for the uh, folks that are listening, you can leave these things on when they say, "Well, you can only leave it on for twenty or thirty minutes or an hour." You're saying, "Well, maybe that's what you've been taught, but you can leave it on for considerably longer." And in dire situations, you got to make the choice: life over limb, literally, right? Yeah, yeah, and and you know, to to take that even a little further, kind of going to um, indicate how old I am. Um, when I was in Boy Scouts, you know, they taught us how to make a tourniquet with a stick and, and you know, a, yes. a, a piece of cloth or a, a triangular bandage or something like that. And the rule was 
you release it every 20 minutes to let some blood flow right. so you don't damage anything. Right. Okay. <clears throat> and it's still um, a common well, thought okay, today. To people who haven't had any further training, yes. Right, right. So, you know, let's say you're out in the woods with this guy for eight hours and you're releasing that tourniquet every 20 minutes. How long before he bleeds out? <laughs> <laughs> who knows? <laughs> so, right. So, but yeah, Greg's absolutely right. And I've heard exactly the same thing. Eight to 10 hours before uh, any significant muscle damage, because let's face it, you know, especially overseas, you might be four hours, six hours from a medevac. Hmm. What, what are you going to do? You know, right. um, you may be out in the woods, you know, on a hike, five, six, 10 miles from the trailhead. And you've got your 250 pound buddy that's bleeding out. Now what? Right. You know, you put a tourniquet right. on him, you haul ass back to the trailhead, get help, and then get back up to him. Or you try to hump him out, you know, the, of the of the boonies, and you both end up dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that, that brings up an interesting ways. thing. That's what you guys, and that's the other part of what you're doing there, too, because you guys mentioned earlier about being psychologists, you know, shoulder to cry on. I mean, you guys are there to console and keep that person positive, and, you know, you got to keep their spirits up, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, a lot of folks. Yeah. I mean, depression that, and anxiety will kill you just as fast. Yeah. I mean, so I'm just saying, you know, you, know, you you've, you've put this tourniquet on this person, you've ratcheted it down, and they've had a you know a fairly significant wound. I mean, one of the other things you got to do is you you're you got to you know fairly frequently reassure them that everything's going to be fine. They're going to be okay. They're going to live. They're not going to die. Right. Yep. Right. And it's got that opens up. A, a big part of the question that you could ask, what is the difference? What is, you know, the difference between tactical medicine stateside and tactical medicine in a foreign country in a combat or conflict zone? Mm -hmm. The key factor that has to be very present in both is the ability to bring calmness to the chaos through your actions. Hmm. Um, when Tim got struck at Talil with a Chinese 105 and it trapped a couple people in there, there was people so hyped up. They were running around and, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You know, it finally happened. And then when I was one of the first to arrive on scene, I was like, okay, settle. What we need to do is we need to go through this methodically. I need to know who my wounded are, gather my wounded over here, line them up so that we can do an assessment on them and get them appropriate care. And one of the pieces that came back is feedback after we did the after action on it was, damn, Doc, you brought you walked in there and you brought a sense of just calmness and complacent behavior to the area. The fact that this is something we routinely deal with. Hmm. And I said, that's a big part of being able to maintain the control of a situation when it's all going to shit. Hmm. And, you know, you get in there and be that calming factor to the chaos. Hmm. Yeah, because, you, you know, a scene like that can be so totally overwhelming. You've got so much going on. You've got all the destruction from, from whatever device exploded. You've got, you may have pieces of people laying around. There's, you know, lots of blood. And, and for someone who hasn't had the training and who hasn't been in the situation, it, it, it can be truly, completely, and totally overwhelming and just overload their senses and, and they're just done. <clears throat> right. So, you, so, you, I'm Very, a, 
So you guys sometimes have to, quote unquote, treat people that really didn't have a physical wound, but they were mentally, they were, quote, for lack of a better term, they were wounded mentally or emotionally from seeing something that they've never seen before. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and and not always not always treat at least you know have the ability to identify it and get them to someone that can help them. Hmm. Okay. You know? uh, so let me so let me ask you then uh, for clarification. Uh, let's see, combat lifesaver versus tactical combat casualty care. You know, it occurs to me lately that combat lifesaver is kind of like a part, maybe a big part of tactical combat casualty care, but is there a difference? Are those courses combined now, or are they separate and distinct, and, and if so, why? No, they're, they're offshoots of each other. All it is is someone putting a new tag on the same information. Hmm. Um, you know, some may ex- uh, explain more detail and stuff. When I did my civilian training over here, for tactical medicine with law enforcement, um, I went through a program from HHS, and they had some pretty good information and stuff, and they passed on, you know. But it was it was interesting that the information they had was very metropolitan. It wasn't worldly. It wasn't a conflict combat zone. Hmm. Um, you know, they're talking about uh, a law enforcement officer or some civilian who's been shot and you're taking care of them. And it's kind of a, a lesser degree of the scenario, even though the adrenaline can still be there, but it wasn't, you know, you've got five guys that just been thumped in a, in a Humvee by an IED and now deal with it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a little bit different uh, in the stress level of the scenarios. But once again, it's through our training and through our experience that you gain that ability to walk onto those mass casualties and say, okay, here's my priorities. Mm. Here's who I need to be treating. Start enlisting other people to get treating and stuff. You don't see that stuff in combat or in uh, the, uh, you know, tactical medicine <clears throat> courses here. Mm. Uh, right. And, and, you know, in their defense, I went through um, ISTM out here in California with the uh, Palm Springs Police Department and the, the International School of Tactical Medicine. Two-week course. Lots of fun, lots of running and gunning. Um, but in, in their defense on the civilian side, you know, they haven't they haven't experienced what we've what we've experienced overseas. There's not a lot of IEDs laying around, you know, sure. L.A. and 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 you know, these guys aren't aren't building shape charges, you know, in sewer pipes and and shooting them at the police as they go by. Ten years ago. Um, so, you know, that was the level of the training and the training was, you know, uh, ballistic wounding, um, you know, uh, gunshot wounds and so on. So that's, that's what they trained for and that's what they treated. Now we go overseas and, you know, you have four guys in a Humvee that, that get popped by a, by an IED, you know, so it, it's a different wounding pattern. It, it's, it's a different extraction technique, you know, so, but the problem is now, uh, it, you know, what we're seeing over here is we're seeing a lot more of the same type of of uh, insertion tactics in the, in America that we were seeing overseas. You know, you're seeing these guys are making bombs out of pressure cookers and, and 
you know, they're, they're going in and, and they're not just, you know, shooting up a couple of people in their workplace. They're going into a grocery store and, and, you know, taking out 10 people, hmm. you know, yeah. and, and, you know, going into nightclubs and spraying them with semi-automatic weapons firing. You don't have to be a good shooter when you're in an enclosed environment you know, <laughs> with a lot of ammo. You just have to be dedicated. Right. You know, uh, you know, but that brings up a good point because I was going to ask you guys, and it's a, almost a perfect segue, you know, has that, you know, uh, a, I think the, the term mass casualty, <coughs> and, you know, and all that other stuff uh, really came into um, the American lexicon probably about the time of 9-11. Um, and, and people started rethinking things and we started seeing that term. But have you guys seen or are you guys seeing a trend where law enforcement medical personnel they're all kind of getting on board and saying you know uh, maybe we should incorporate this stuff maybe we should refine our training maybe we should include this uh just in case kind of thing um or is it or is it region dependent you know because some would argue well we never see that here so why should we train on it no i well, believe it's go ahead Greg. Yeah, I think it's definitely becoming more of a trend, uh, simply because you're now getting these uh, multiple shooters or the multiple casualties out of a single shooter that you're having to deal with some of that. And, you know, you see things like Sandy Hook and some of the other scenarios that went horribly wrong because there wasn't that uh, tactical medic type insertion into the whole project. Hmm. Yeah, Columbine um, was Columbine was the first good example of that, where the cops were staying out for like forty and forty five minutes, while people are inside bleeding to death. Hmm. Correct. Yeah. So okay. So I, now, I think are, it's or cops or law enforcement well, hang, type. Hang, hang on that, a second. Oh, okay. Hang on, Scott. I, I think the rest of the answer to your question is, um, in larger metropolitan areas, we're seeing more of a of the fire departments. Uh, deploying tactical medics and sending them through training. So they've already got their, they're already paramedics and now they're sending them through the tactical portion of it, you know, and it's a little more than, you know, learning how to put on body armor because you've seen um, these situations where, you know, someone will go in and, and they'll start shooting at the cops and, and they'll get this law enforcement presence out there. And then, you know, the medics show up and they start popping the medics, you know, as they're rolling in or shooting at firefighters and stuff like that. So these guys are getting the idea that these people are using different tactics. Mm. But then you run into, you run into large metropolitan police departments. You have egos that you have to deal with. You know, we know better. We're the SWAT guys. There's nothing you can teach us. <laughs> uh, you know, um, and, and, you know, we, we've all met those guys. Yeah. Um, but then you have budget constraints. You have, you know, training time. How do you, how do you train a guy? You know, do you take a cop and make him a paramedic or you take a paramedic and make him a cop? Hmm. You know, somebody's got to pay for the training. Right. You know. Hmm. So do you see it mostly as a budget thing versus, say, a desire thing? I would say it's probably it, everything's taken into consideration. You know, and, and it's like Greg said, it's like, oh, we've never seen this here before. So, you know, wh why should we worry about that? Well, you know, every place that everything's happened in the last five years, no one ever seen anything like that before. You've never seen, you know, a guy go into a, a church in Texas with an AR and start start blasting people. You, you don't see people 
going into a Christmas celebration in San Bernardino, you know, with semi-automatic weapons and then getting into a running gunfight with the police, you know, for an hour afterwards and, and getting, you know, slaughtered on live TV. Hmm. Right. Never happened there before either. You know? Right. <laughs> now it is. Right. Well, Very true. And, and that harkens back to uh, an important security concern, or not concern, but um, uh, stratagem or notion that I think we we all try to remind them. It's like just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it isn't going to happen. And That's you know, right. and and talking with them, it's like I'm not trying to freak anybody out, but I'm just saying these are. But I guess the point I'm trying to make, which is what you guys are talking about, which is okay, but you need to think about these things and be prepared for it. If it does happen, because if it does happen and you haven't prepared for it, you're going to have a lot of questions to answer, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, and it, it all goes to, you know, do you want to be proactive or do you want to be reactive? You know, <laughs> um, you know reactivity is, is, is all great and, and fine, you know, until you're, you know, standing there drawing the chalk outlines, you know, <laughs> on people that could have been saved. had you had a tactical medic in there uh you know it's just like it's just like concealed firearms okay you think about all these scenarios like this this deal that happened in denver you know with the with the guy going in and shooting up the grocery store what if one person in there had some decent training and was carrying concealed and, and they could they could put their training to work right you know the the what ifs can can go on you know forever right but I've seen, even in my small city, I, I live in, I live in a, a city of about 105,000 people. We have our own police department, our own fire department. Um, the city council came out and said, you know, we need to have tactical medics. And I was partly to blame for that because I was friends with the mayor and we talked about it and I talked to the chief. And, and I said, you know, you, you guys are seeing a lot more um, crime coming into the city from outside of our city. So, you know, we, we've had we've had a lot of assaults. Um, we've had ADWs. We've had a couple of murders, a lot of carjackings, um, you know, and these are people that come from outside of our city and come in and, and raise hell. And the chief said, well, you know, that's a great idea. We should probably explore that. Talk to the fire chief. Fire chief didn't want to have anything to do with it because of the liability of his firefighters. Hmm. You know, it's all their union and their union rules and all that. So our police department sent... Uh, I think they sent eight or 10 guys through TAC med training and, uh, you know, and got them trained and, and got them equipped and, and they're a pretty solid unit and huh. we don't have a SWAT team, but we have uh, a response team, I think is the way they couched it. Okay. So if we really need a SWAT presence, we'll call LA County, but we have our own tactical medic unit within our police department. And there's usually four guys on shift at any time, hmm. any one time. And, and while we're talking about that uh, that whole tactical medicine thing, I mean, uh, you you hearkened on it, you or Greg uh, hearkened on it just a little bit earlier, which was um, when when there's a response, uh, instead of just the ambulance showing up or just in, instead of the police showing up, it's a it's a multi-thrust response. I mean, because they want to, they all want to converge, ideally at the same time. Um, so everybody can do their job and nobody gets left behind and nobody gets a surprise in the back, right? Correct. Okay. That's absolutely correct. And, and you know, the thing before was 
cops would show up, secure the, the perimeter, they'd secure the scene, they'd make sure, you know, the, the, that the threat is taken care of, and now the fire department goes in. And the fire department goes in and finds, you know, all these people that have bled to death unnecessarily. Hmm. So now you take you take that tactical medic and you put him in with the SWAT team, in with the entry team, and instead of, you know, 40 minutes, they're going in in five or ten. Right. You know? Now, is that a growing trend? But, Are we seeing a lot more to, of it? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You're seeing more, many more teams adapt that as a tiered response between tac med and law enforcement, hmm. um, even to the point of cross pollinization, you know, and that's what we see is the hybrid uh, tactical medic, law enforcement medic type. Um, with that being said, you know, it's not only a growing trend, but people are seeing the necessity based on past failures hmm, and right. there's nothing worse than to sit there and have to go on to some news conference and telling about the people that have died uh, inside some structure because of lack of attention. Right. So the media kind of drives that. But then again, it's the common sense approach to what we do overseas. Hmm. You know, we don't go in and send it. Uh, a ranger battalion say stabilize the situation and then we'll go rescue the people <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> oh, you are part of the ranger battalion you get in there call the oh, navy yeah. and have them soften it up a little bit first with some on offshore right. yeah not the way it works no so it's cross-pollinating over to law enforcement and they're starting to get the idea that oh yeah this is an integral part of the tactical response is to have those medics available on site right there not hmm. only for the victims but all law enforcement hmm. yeah now greg tell me tell me something and, and and we'll see how closely related we are the hardest thing for me to do as a medic going through tactical medicine was learning that tactics had to come first stepping over a patient and and not stopping immediately and rendering aid um you know that's very interesting because in my MSO in, in the Air Force, uh, being in combat search, one of the things that we did is we had dedicated members that would set up the perimeter right away. And we okay. always had our guns in the air that were circling the wagons, protecting us, you know, keeping that overwatch as we did the extraction. Now, that being said, of course you've got to sit there and consider the um, your safety and your patient safety by engaging and maybe just dragging them to a safer location. Right. Uh, you know, yeah, it's all so scenario dependent. It is, but it, it is very difficult to step over someone who's sitting there with a sucking chest wound and go, I have to engage and protect the perimeter because I know, you know, you're thinking, I wonder if I could put that, you know, Asher chest seal on with my foot. Yeah, exactly. I'm, uh, if, if I stick the edge of it to my toe and then kind of run it over his chest and then step on it, it should be okay. <laughs> and therefore, but that's exactly what I'm talking about because it is such a tough um, fork of the road to turn down to say, yeah. oh, I need to now engage the uh, combatant versus take care of uh, my wounded. Yeah. Well, there was there was a series of pictures. I think it came out of Fallujah, and it was a a, a Marine uh, patrol 
And one guy stepped out from behind the wall and got out about five or six feet and he got shot by a sniper. And the next guy ran out to try to grab him, drag him back into safety, and he got shot by the sniper. <laughs> and then a third guy went out and tried to get both of them and he got shot. And then they finally went, you know, maybe we should shoot the sniper. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, t- take care of this first. But, you know, I, I, again, it, it is, it's all scenario dependent. It depends on, on the size of your team. You know, if you've got, you know, a, a good size SWAT entry team, you know, 10, 12 guys, you know, two or three guys can stop and form a perimeter while one guy treats and, and the rest of them can continue on and do the tactics. But if you're on a small team, if you're on a five man team, you know, hmm. there's, there's no opportunity for that. Hmm. So, so it, was, it was a little, a little bit of a mind, mind screw, but you know, we all get, we get past it and learn that, you know, you, you got to make sure that, you know, there are no other victims, you know, while you're, while you're trying to treat somebody. Right. So there's a lot, a lot going on both physically and mentally while you're doing all this. And, uh, you know, at some point you just got to come to terms with certain things, whether it's your safety or the safety of the person you're trying to treat or whatever, but that, that comes from experience and then just come to terms with, with, with the situation, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, rigidly flexible. Rigid, rigidly you flexible. Know? You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna write that. Yeah, down. me I, too. I really like that. I, yeah, that that's a great one, Greg. Uh, I, <laughs> I was just gonna say the same thing. I think Rig- I hung out with. I hung out with too many Marines. You know, I was always Semper Gumby. <laughs> always flexible. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But I really like rigidly flexible. That's awesome. Right. Okay. Uh, so let me ask you guys, you know, based on uh, what we've seen transpiring uh, in the last, let's just say the last year, uh, do you guys do you guys find that the jobs you do um, when you're responding or the people that you know and network with when they're re- responding to an incident, do you find that there is more or less resistance or, you know, to, I mean, or more or less concern when they're responding to an incident because of the political environment that we find ourselves in. I mean, does that play into you guys' decisions on, on whether you, I mean, whether you want to be there or not? I mean, that's by nature. You guys can almost not help yourselves wanting to help somebody. But does any of this stuff get in the way um, on a practical level? Um, I would say, and this is just opinion and my take on it, uh, no, it doesn't. We have a certain responsibility that when we swore an oath and took the additional set steps and actions to become lifesavers, um, then at that point you have to transcend the politics, you have to transcend all the bizarre new uptick kind of organizations that are coming on board and you have to look at it as my priority is that of uh saving life stamping out pain and suffering and cheating death Hmm. yep i i totally agree i mean you know you'll hear people say oh well you know i can never do something like that but but it's like greg said we we swore an oath to to protect life Hmm. and and it doesn't matter what party you're from doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter, you know, what your sexual orientation is. It doesn't matter what color you are, tall, short, fat, skinny, attractive, ugly. 
you're, you're, you're bleeding and I'm there to make sure that you don't succumb to your wounds, period. Right. Well, kind of the, yeah, epit- was, kind of the epitome very, of the protector, right? Right. There was a very point, uh, case of that. And it was during the, I believe, entering in to, um, I don't know if it was Baghdad or Fallujah or where it was, but there was a naval corpsman and one of the TV broadcasters was uh, watching this corpsman and he ran into the conflict, drags out an enemy combatant and starts providing treatment to him. Hmm. And the news person sat there and looked at him and said, what are you doing? That guy's, you know, the enemy. The corpsman flipped around and told him, he said, doesn't matter. It's a human life. I'm saving it. And the, and the poignant part was, as he turned around to go back into the battle, he kind of gave him the one finger salute. That stuck with everyone. And uh, uh, Ollie North in his war stories brought that up quite clearly. At, you know, no, you have to understand that America is this nation. Yes, you know, we're combatants and we're pretty damn good combatants. And, uh, but we also have been trained for compassion towards those that we are fighting against as well. Hmm. Oh, and there are time and time, of, uh, these stories where, you know, you're taking care of the wounded, uh, and you're not sure, you know, is this guy Taliban or who is he and stuff? And you're, you're taking care of them and you're treating them as well as you would anyone else. Right. Yeah, and it, and it's not just combatants. Um, my first trip to Iraq, um, we went to we went to Reno for training. Uh, flew home on a Sunday morning to to L.A. My family met me there and swapped bags with me, and I got right on a plane and headed for Iraq. Hmm. Um, I never even left the airport. So we flew into um, to Istanbul. And then we're taking a commercial airliner into Baghdad, which was a little frightening, you know, to begin with. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're, we're flying in it's about, I don't know, half hour, 40 minutes into the flight. And, and the flight attendant comes on and, and uh, first in Farsi and, and then in English asked if there was a physician on board. A, a passenger was having uh, a, a medical emergency or so they thought. And, uh, you know, nobody raised their hand. Nobody did anything. I'm just kind of sitting there, you know, looking around going, All right, whatever. They made the announcement again. And one of my guys from a couple rows back said, hey, Doc, you're going to go help? I'm like, oh, crap. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, you know, I got a, I got a real fast lesson in, uh, in, um, in their culture. And, and uh, you know, in the rules of the way they did things, it was, it was a female, of course, hmm. um, you know, and, and working with the flight attendant, you know, I had to ask her husband's permission to, to talk to her. Hmm. And yeah. he gave his permission. And I asked questions, you know, through the through the flight attendant and she answered. Then I had to ask his permission to check her blood pressure, um, you know, which which he agreed to. And it turned out she was just having a little bit of an anxiety attack because she had put her blood pressure medication that she was dependent on daily in her checked luggage. 
and she convinced herself that she was having, you know, mm. a, a blood pressure issue when in fact she was just having a little bit of an anxiety attack. Hmm. So we got her some water and, you know, sat there and patted her hand and, and you know, everything worked out. But hmm. it was like this instant immersion into, you know, Iraqi culture. <laughs> it's like, wow. okay, that was weird. Yeah. And before and, you even and got then there. I went and found the guy that, that said my name and, you know, kicked him in the ankle. Well, <laughs> 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 you know, that's a, that's a good... I got a question though. I mean, do you guys uh, probably see that sort of thing more often than you do the ugly side of it? I mean, you see a lot more the, you know, the the common stuff that was overblown by the person involved. More, you see that stuff more often than you do the bloody gory stuff, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, it depends on where you are, too. Well, you know? right, right, right. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, if you're riding, if you're riding an ambulance or a helicopter in Chicago or or someplace like that, you know, you might as well be back on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. You know, all you have to do is right. watch the news and see how many people get shot in Chicago every weekend. Right. You know, it, it's it's mind boggling that that happens in this country. Right. But man, those medics are they're getting some really good training and yeah. some great experience. I'll bet. Okay, so and that that's a great segue into what uh, my next question was. Then, uh, f- so for anybody that's listening, uh, that that is an EMT or entering or entering into it or or is thinking about it, what sorts of things um, you know should they bear in mind going forward? What you know, what should they look for? What should they do? What kind of training should they be uh, as- uh, aspiring to, to attain? And what kind and what kind of experience? Where do they want to go? What do they want to do? Uh, what would you guys recommend or suggest? Uh, go ahead, Mike. Uh, well, okay, I'll start it out with my smart ass answer first. Uh, learn how to weld. <laughs> it's like, weld? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot less stressful. You can go to work just about anywhere in the world if you're a good welder. Um, you know, it, it, chances are you won't suffer from as much, you know, uh, PTSD and 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 other, you know, uh, career related maladies. Huh. Um, but but my honest answer is, and I mean this might sound kind of hokey, but Nobody really decides to go, you know, I think I'm going to be a medic. You know, you're not just sitting there one day going, let's see, fireman. Do I want to be an engineer? Medicine's a calling. Hmm. And, and, and I think is, is probably by and large for, for anyone who's, who's ever really worked in something other than, you know, being a medical assistant or, or you know, working in a, in a retirement home, it, it, it calls to you. Hmm. Um, I, when I was four years old, both of my parents smoked and they always bought these, uh, these big boxes of, of the matchbooks, you know, the folding matchbooks. Mm. And there was one that said, um, you know, I had a little advertisement on it. If you put your name on this, you know, write your name on it and send us a dollar. Um, we'll make you, you know, a hundred business cards. And, and I wrote my name with MD behind it. I wanted to be a doctor my whole life. Mm. And then, you know, high school, I realized I was way too stupid to be a doctor. (laughs) But, but then, Remember the show Emergency? Oh yeah, you know, yeah. With Johnny Gage flipping the the ends off the off the syringes, and you know they're rubbing the paddles together. And all yeah, I like. I want to be that guy. Huh. You know, and huh. I never wanted to do anything else in my life except you know run around and shoot guns and 
chase girls <laughs> can't make a living at that <laughs> well you can but it's 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 illegal well, it's, it's short lived you know it's only until you're about 25 <laughs> you know Mike nailed it um especially for becoming a um contracting medic uh it's a calling you you don't necessarily find anyone in the career field that goes into it and says, man, I really hate doing this because if you do, you're out very quickly. Yeah. I've had those, I've trained people all the way through. They go on two or three bad scenes and they're like, this is not for me. They're gone. Um, the calling of medicine and the, you know, the calling to care for others is something that is at the root of it. Now, Take it that one step further and go into uh, the combat or the conflict areas in the world. You have to really have a good sit down with yourself um, because it comes at a price, you know. And Mike, Mike kind of nailed it there with the PTSD, the um, trauma that you're going to assimilate in your life can become something that's burdening over a long period of time. Mm. And we see this all the time. It's it's very sad to see in uh, EMS, law enforcement, and uh, firefighting, the suicide rate is somewhere up around 33%. Yeah, it's it's huge. High, if you think about it. And put yourself then into a conflict zone, which is absolute chaos that you're thrown into, and you're kind of the one that's, okay, you figure this out, you put it together, you give me a program that works so that we can take care of our people. And um, it's it's a higher calling for sure. Hmm. It's not for everyone. I'll, I'll tell you that. It's not for everyone. So, Scott, to kind of just like pare it down to what your question was, what you would need to do is probably, if you have an interest in something like that, take what, one of the tactical medic courses. Learn what it means to become a shooter doc. Learn what it means to be able to sit there and go into a conflict zone. Uh, there is no preparation stateside that you can do for something being dropped off in some foreign country. It's just that, that comes with its own. But you have to have a strong enough constitution that you have faith in your ability and faith in your uh, means of getting something set up that will work for you. Hmm. And if you don't have that, then, you know, you're, you're going to be one of those people that becomes, uh, you know, dead weight. Hmm. And you can't have that out in conflict <clears throat> area. You need some. As Mike alluded to earlier, proactive. You have to be proactive at it. You Mm. have to sit there and go through scenarios and drills every day of your existence out there going, okay, what if this goes down? How am I going to handle this? What if, you know, I have eight people? What if, you know, we're under heavy attack? What's my position? What's my role? Where do we, you know, all this stuff has to be played in scenarios. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, and Greg just brought some of the that's really important and, and it's a huge huge difference between 
guys like us and, and, and the places we've been and the civilians we deal with. You know, working working EP here in the States, it's a lot of it's a lot of boring mundane crap. It's jewelry stores and, and you know, it's protective details to people who think, you know, somebody wants to kidnap them or whatever. But a lot of times you'll end up in these in these places where you're surrounded by, you know, nothing but civilians. No one with, with even an inkling of, you know, what to do. And you try to run these what if scenarios with them and it just freaks them out, you know, hmm. and, and, and all you're doing is you're trying to prep them, you know, to, to save themselves and, and, you know, to get out of the line of fire should anything happen. But they just they can't process it. You know, oh, that's never going to happen here, you know, or or I don't want to hear this. You know, this is too <clears throat> negative, you know, whatever. But overseas and, and Greg's right. We did that all the time. You know, we'd, we'd go around the towers like, OK, so if the attack came from from this position and we were here and this tower was unmanned, what would we do to get this tower up and running? And where would we put, you know, we've got a truck with a, with a 240 in the back of it. Where would we put that so they could, you know, safely engage? And, and you know, so you're doing this kind of stuff all the time. Hmm. And, and even with the guys that I work with down here, you know, the guys that I work with, you know, we'd sit there and we'd map out scenarios, you know, um, before we'd start a shift. And it's like, okay, if the, you know, if the threat comes from here, which way are you going to move these people? You know, how are we going to secure the, the, the doors? You know, all that stuff. But if you don't, if you don't think about it, and if you don't process it through your mind, um, it's just going to catch you by surprise. Hmm. Yeah, and then you're in trouble. Hey! Then you're doing weeks' work in a matter of minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So let, let me ask well, you guys. No, I used, go I ahead. Used to travel, I used to travel for a very, uh, very well-known, uh, very wealthy family, and uh, we would we would take these missions, and, and I did a lot of the advance work. Um, you know, if they were planning on getting into town on like Thursday, we were on the ground on Monday, and and this may have even been to a place that we'd been to three times. Didn't matter. We were there two or three days early every single time, going through the hotel running the routes from, you know, we're driving from the hotel to dinner or from the hotel to, you know, stops one, two, and three. And we would run those routes exactly how we were going to do them, you know, the, the day that they were on the ground and, and running the mission. And there was never a flaw, you know, because we'd done it 20 times before they got there. And even though we'd been to this hospital before, we would always go in, we'd you know, hand out cards. We'd talk to the charge nurse. We'd, we'd talk to an administrator if we could get a hold of them, tell them, you know, who we are, why we're there, how long we're going to be there, and, and make sure everything was still up to code. If we were going to a, a venue, you know, we, we would go to that venue uh, in the advance, and we would engage with security, with housekeeping, with HR, see if anybody had been recently fired, if there was, you know, someone who had gone sideways, you know, just whatever take care of all the what ifs what happens if this happens before you ever do the mission and you're just way far ahead you know uh and in four years we never had an incident so wow yeah it's so very important to do very important to do all the advanced work right um Plus so you're getting paid you know, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> really no responsibility <laughs> So, Run all the routes and hit the barbecue by one o'clock. <laughs> right. So, are you guys? I, I got to ask you guys. So, are do you guys from your experiences uh, are are 
medics, uh, paramedics, EMTs um, in stateside and non-conflict zones, are they taken as seriously by, say, the client as they would be in a conflict zone? I mean, is, is there like, is there, you know, is, is there a distinction where over in a conflict zone, we look at you guys at a whole different light, but outside that, are you guys, do they look at you the same way or do they just say, what do we need him for? Depends yeah, on the client. Yeah. Depends on the client. Sometimes we get, uh, you know, viewed as just, uh, you know, when I was working for the city of Pittsburgh, I hate to say it, a glorified bus driver. We yeah. would pick people, take them to the hospital, drop them off, and they would check out immediately because all they wanted us for is a free ride downtown. Hmm. Uh, you know, you don't find that stuff in an austere environment because people recognize the worth because all of a sudden the multitude or the um, system is so micro versus macro, you know. Uh, over stateside, we have these great systems. We have mutual aid agreements. We have tons of resources and stuff unless you're in some far off remote area. But, you know, it does go from the clientele based upon the need of the service. So if you're in a rural area, you're highly looked upon as a wealth to the community. If you're in a metropolitan area, you know, you're just a boss and a meat wet. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, overseas, uh, you, as a shooter or as a medic, you know, and when uh, Greg, you did whips, right? Yeah. Okay. So all three of us did whips and, and, and we know that when we go to the embassy and we load people in vehicles and we take them, you know, out traipsing around the countryside to hand out books or whatever it is they're going to do. There's a threat. There's always a threat. Right. It, it may not be as high as some other areas, but there's always a threat. Okay. Uh, stateside, you know, especially doing EP, you have you have basically three different types of clients. You have a client that truly needs protection because he's just he or she is just an asshole. They have all kinds of enemies. You know, they've <laughs> they've done stuff that you know um, that people want to kill them for. Okay, um, and and then you have um, you have the wannabes. You know, you have a guy with a bunch of money. Nobody has any idea who he is, but he feels cool having a PSD team with him. You know, even if it's, you know, two square headed, six foot four, you know, morons that, that couldn't put a, a sentence together. There are these big <laughs> dudes with suits and dark glasses, you know, so that makes them feel good. And, and then there's the client that that really appreciates having security around because there there may be a threat, you know, like like the family I worked for. Their biggest threat was kidnapped for ransom, you know, and that was that was their main concern. And everybody in that family was happy to have us around which is almost unheard of, but it, it, but then when you, when you left the family and got up to the next level, uh, their management type people and thought we were, you know, a completely unnecessary expense and, yeah. and, and then started cutting us back. You know, when we were flying internationally, Hong Kong and Indonesia and places like that, we always flew business class because when you get there, you had to be refreshed. You had to be rested. You had to be able to hit the ground and go to work. Well, once the, once the bean counters got a hold of it, um, you know, and it was just before I left, um, they said, well, yeah, no more business class. Everybody's flying commercial, you know, 
coach, whatever. And it's like, really going to put me on a plane for 15 hours, you know, all cramped up and right. you want me to just jump off the plane and go right to work. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Right. So have, right. a, have, a, have a nice day. I'm going to go learn how to weld. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a fourth type of client out there in the EP world. And it's the worst one of them all. And that's the person that you have to protect from themselves. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> you have a guy that goes out there, you know, tons of money, has fame, fortune, whatever, and wants to just do the stupid idiotic stuff and try to just get him the scenario. And that's the worst kind of EP out there is having to deal with uh, the person that has, you know, uh, trying to damage to himself. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Want to go to strip clubs and start fights and, and yep. you know, stupid mm. crap like that. It's like they want to be out and then, all night. And then has the, the gumption to have animosity against you from having making decisions for him. Yeah. So there again. The- <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's when you go, you know what? I shoved you in the car, not in the trunk. So quit complaining. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I got to ask you guys, um, uh, what could each of you, if, if you want to, uh, share what you think is, pro- if you can recollect, probably the funniest moment you can remember in your career um, doing what you do and, and or uh, maybe one of the uh, saddest or worst stories not not the grittiest necessarily not the bloodiest but you know um, do either one of you have something like that that uh, you you uh, care to share quickly all right uh, we were we were traveling with the family and uh, th- this is an international company so we went everywhere with them and, and we were doing a, a big uh, to do in Hong Kong. And, you know, so we all flew in, we were there like four days early trying to, you know, reset your clock and, and, you know, get up to speed. Um, we had a guy uh, who was actually a manager of that team um, who had no business being on an EP detail. Um, he had no experience. He just, he kissed the right, the right ass and, and was in the right place at the right time and talked the right person into, into letting him do this. Hmm. Um, we all knew he was useless. So we just kind of, you know, we worked around him and, and listened to him when we had to basically. And, and the rest of the time was just like, you know, whatever. Hmm. So we're staying in this hotel, uh, in this super high rise building. I think it's not the highest. It's the second highest in all of Hong Kong. They have the highest indoor swimming pool in the world. That tells you anything. Wow. The hotel, the hotel started on the 100th floor. Okay. And, and, and went up from there. So we're going downstairs to do an advance and there's all these screaming, I mean, screaming young kids down there with, uh, you know, their, their faces all painted up and, you know, they're wearing all these clothes and, and all the memorabilia for this, this particular boy band. And I can't for the life of, Oh, one direction. Okay. Hmm. Uh, one direction was in town. Okay. And one of my daughters, one of my, my, you know, 10 year old daughters, one of her favorite bands, you know, she was all about it. And so, you know, we went through the crowd and, you know, we're trying to get stuff done and we get back up into the hotel and we're all sitting in the bar later that night. And and this guy comes in and he goes, Oh my God, you're not going to believe what I got. And he's showing everybody his phone. 
he stalked one of the guys in this band into the gym and took a selfie with him. (laughs) (laughs) And he was so excited about this. It's like, look, I got my picture with what's his face. I go, yeah, that's that's great. That's that's my 10 year old daughter's favorite band. Wow. (laughs) What the hell were you thinking? Wow. Right. Yikes. Oh man. I mean, though, though that's, that's so many things right there. That uh, it's everything. I, yeah, it's I mean everything oh, wow. that's wrong with some people that do right. the jobs that we do. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. Man, that just covers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Okay, uh, Greg. What about you? You know, you know, uh, there was always uh, a laugh. We were always kidding around with each other, having great times, pranking each other. Uh, to the point of, you know, probably not making the best decisions. Um, <laughs> but, you know, outside of that spectrum, remember one case in particular that was really hard and it stuck uh, kind of, you know, in my throat with not being able to do everything that needed to be done. And that was um, a poor Bedouin kid that was... Um, brought to me because he had tipped a cooking vessel with hot oil and he was scalded probably I'd say a good 30 to 40 percent of his total body surface area uh, in a real nasty burn uh, at least you know uh, a second degree burn if not uh, deeper in some areas and they brought me the child and I did a debridement on him tried to do best I could to control his pain with what I had and uh, did a debridement, uh, bandaged him up, gave him the silvadine, and I, um, you know, requested that I see him back in, in at least 24 to 48 hours. And it was interesting because when that time came by, of course he didn't come back. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, this is while I'm living in the, the uh, ghetto of Baghdad. I'm off off the embassy and outside the IZ, living in Al Haria. Oh God! And, <laughs> yeah, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, why they didn't bring him back. Well, I got to talking and stuff, and they said, "Oh no, no, he's doing fine, and we're putting the cream on, and that's what we need." And it was just one of those things that you we realize from a Western standard of medicine, you know, this kid needed to be in a burn unit. He needed daily debridement, wound care, and so on and so forth. But their standard was such that, oh, I had given him the magic cream and that's all he needed. And it was like, you know, it was kind of taxing on me to sit there and continually worry about, man, is this kid developing an infection now? What kind of, uh, adhesions is he going to have all these things that needed to be addressed from a standard of our care where they were just happy that I had in fact given them something to put on uh, the burns. So, hmm. you know, there's, there's stories like that, that, you know, kind of stuck with me and it was just like, wow, I would have really liked to do a much better job of caring for you at patient for a week, two weeks to get him through um, you know, the high point of this stuff. Hmm. So there was always those chapters. But uh, as far as, you know, the comedy and stuff, it was always just 
a hoot. The the heaters and looters that I was out there with hmm. were just amazing people. All different branches of service, but they were all pretty high speed folk. Um, that was that was uh, the best part of it. We always had close camaraderie out there, and that's a big part of it. You know, hmm. the brotherhood that we go out there with. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, and you know, I, I being on on different contracts, and I did a couple of DOD contracts, did Department of State contracts. Um, a lot of the guys I hung out with, you know, super high speed had their crap wired tight and then some of them were just like how do you get out of bed in the morning without murdering yourself you know <laughs> it's just i mean yeah. some of the some of the goofballs you know and, and some of them were the, like they're they were the most fun huh you know huh yeah we kind of see that across uh across across the uh, spectrum there um, in contracts uh of course the higher up you go the less of it you see you still see it but not as much and uh that's it yeah let me ask you guys um so you know we're wrap we've got to wrap this up here pretty soon um but let me ask you guys for anything you haven't put out there that uh, you would like to share with with folks that are listening whether it's um sage advice something to keep in mind um something they should consider uh whatever it is you guys want to say last words Well, you know, you know, we've, we've been down this road again. Um, treat it with the respect that it's, don't go into it thinking that it's, uh, an ego game. It's going to be something to pump you up and look at, you know, good for your buddies or your, uh, your next five minute fling. Um, it, it warrants you taking the job or the consideration to doing the job seriously there is a huge amount of sacrifice enormous amount of sacrifice you're going to be gone from family and friends and uh, loved ones uh you know for quite some time you are not going to be able to share everything nor should you that occurs out there because you'll find that it can actually be more traumatizing to the people at home um, who have your best interest in mind uh, so it's kind of a lonely lifestyle. Uh, as far as the being the doc, uh, you're on call 24 seven. There is no, uh, there's no break for you. If something's going down, I expect them to be the first door to knock on saying, Hey doc, we something going down. Um, so it's that commitment. It's, it's not, uh, a weekend job. It's not, you know, a part-time thing. It's a full-time lifestyle commitment to doing it hmm. yeah I, I i would agree i mean you know and it's like we said before it, it truly is a calling you know there are a lot of people that go out and, and work in the um in the medical field you know on the fringes you know they're um they're dedicated to their craft you know they're an x-ray tech or you know a lab tech or a phlebotomist or whatever um but this is this is like it's, you can't even call it a step up. It's like it's a giant leap, you know, to go from from being a medical assistant in a in the back office of some you know dock in the box someplace to being the guy or the gal overseas responsible for a bunch of people's lives, hmm. and, and it's 
it's like Greg said, it's, it's not something you can discount. It's not something you can take lightly. Um, and, and overseas contracting will exact a toll on you. Um, up to, you know, I just found out that, that one of the kids that was, that was in Helmand province with us, uh, on contract, um, another one, I think this is number seven or number eight, took his own life over the weekend. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, he's combat Marine, um, you know, he's squared away kid, never reached out and asked anybody for any help, never, never made any mention, just took a handful of pills, went to sleep, you know, wow. um, hmm. and, and, and being over there affects everyone differently. Right. Um, so, some people, some people go through it and they come back and they're, they're screwed up for life. You know, it's relationships and jobs and, and all of that. No, nothing, nothing ever works for them. Why? Now, who knows? Um, I, I can honestly sit here and, and say that I miss the lifestyle. Um, I miss the camaraderie. Um, I, I miss the work. Um, I miss the people. I don't miss the food. I don't miss the weather. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't miss being separated from my family. Um, I miss the money. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, there's you got to weigh it all out. And it's like, if I could do it all over again, I'd do it. Mm. You know, if I yeah. could do it again right now, no, I'm done. Mm. You know, I, 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 I did it. Um, I survived it. I came back. I'm, I'm still a, a whole human being for the most part, you know, except for, you know, what was wrong with me to begin with. <laughs> but, you know, here we are. Um, I can say that I'm happy now that I'm retired. I'm surprised that I made it to this age. Mm. You know, I, I've done everything I could to, to not, <laughs> um, hmm. and, and, you know, the thing, I think, I think that probably the most important thing that, and I think you guys might agree, we were able to work in places where a good part of the population would have been happy to kill us. Yeah. Um, yeah. we were, we were able to work with, especially as a contractor, you know, when you're in the air force, or in the Navy or the Marines or the Army, you're usually, you're working with your own kind. You know, you're, you're, you're with your own group of people, especially, you know, I was on a submarine and trapped underwater with the same 111 guys, you know, for, for six months on, on, a, on a cruise. Um, but once you start contracting, you realize that you're working with people from every branch of service. And I mean, we had everyone from, from National Guard to Coast Guard to, you know, to Air Force PJs. Um, we had Marine Raiders. We, we had everybody. You know, and all different walks of life, all different races, all different financial, economic, educational backgrounds. And, and you realize that, you know, you can build a cohesive team and you can work with anybody hmm. as long as they're on the same path. You know, it's a heck of an Absolutely. education, a heck of an experience. I mean, yeah, yeah, you, you really can't match. You really can't match it. But you answered an important point uh, that I was going to ask both of you, and I'll ask it anyway. Uh, so, if you guys had it to do over again, I mean, would you choose something different, or knowing what you know, would you say, you know what, I liked it, man, I'll do it again? Oh, I'd definitely do it again. There might be a little more preparation on the side um <laughs> you know right. <laughs> making sure to take care of relationships a bit differently or you know other considerations right but uh, no i'd absolutely 
Yeah, yeah I, I would too. And, 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 you know, I think you and I have talked about this before, Scott, but I would have started a lot sooner, right? A lot sooner in life because I, 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 I told you before, and I don't know if you knew this, Greg, but I went through whips at 54. Wow. wow. Damn. Right. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, right in the middle of it, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking kind of like the same, you know, after you're in boot camp for like three weeks, you know, what the hell have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and and he, we just finished a, a land nav class and it was cold and, and I was, I was tired and, you know, I'd been beat up by the, the branches out going through the thicket and my feet were still frozen. I was dirty. I was hungry. And I'm like, what the hell are you thinking? You know, hmm. but, <laughs> but then, you know, you're in, you're a month into it and you're like, yeah, I can't quit now. Right. Know? Right. And, and so, you know, you finish. And I came home and I lived on ice packs and, you know, Tylenol and, and ibuprofen for a couple of weeks and, you know, <laughs> let the bruises heal and, yeah, I survived. Right. So well, I would have started it a lot earlier. Um, and, and like Greg said, if, if I knew then what I know now, uh, I would have been a lot better prepared mm. for that. There are certain things that I would have packed and certain things that I would have shipped to myself, you know, in advance. <laughs> Um, but yeah, in a freaking heartbeat, hmm. you know? Wow. And that's, that's a testament to, uh, uh, to a lot of stuff. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Um, guys, I would love to continue this. Um, but a, I know you both got other things you need to get to and B we've been at it for a while, but I want to say this has been an extreme pleasure uh, being able to talk about this stuff with both of you at the same time. And so I want to thank you. I can't thank both of you enough for making the time, working this out, and uh, and uh, getting on and uh, discussing these things uh, with me for the listeners. I, I can't thank you guys enough. So, Well, Scott, it's always an honor. And uh, I love sharing for those uh, young people or those <laughs> um, uh, you know, a valuable experience for them to listen in and get some insight into the stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Right. right. Most excellent. Okay, then. Uh, so uh, thank you again to my uh, guests for this episode, uh, Greg Hesh um, and Mike Ritchie, um, also known as Doc, Doc Hesh and Doc Ritchie. Uh, plenty of people have worked with these guys, know who these guys are. Um very legitimate guys. So uh, thank you for yeah, tuning. We're, we're gonna open on we're gonna open on Broadway soon. It's gonna be a tale of two dots. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> oh, <laughs> all right. So uh, always comic relief. Uh, <laughs> so thank you for tuning in to another uh, episode of Aconis the Contractor's Life, everybody. I want to thank you, uh, my guests, again and. And thank you to all the patriots and warriors out there. Um, and uh, thank you to all the listeners who support this uh, who support this podcast. If you like what you hear and would like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Oconus TCL. If you'd like to be a guest on this podcast or you know someone who would, drop us a line at info at OconusTCL.com. Remember that the grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for. Stay frosty, stay safe. Until next time, keep it real.